he's bold. And uh, maybe react in a way that he wouldn't choose to react ourselves. Okay, so quite counterintuitive. Maybe unwise. Uh, unwise. Okay. If you aren't scaring a living, definitely. Okay, fair enough. Any others? <laughs> yeah, loads of people look at that, and um, quite a few commentators I was reading, I don't know this off the top of my head, uh, quite a few commentators saying he, he's just babbling, doesn't mean anything. Um, any others? I think challenging, yeah, I, I think that would be hard to avoid. Um, you could come away from it with all kinds of impressions. Um, some that uh, occurred to me with anger at just the ridiculous injustice of it, or um, confusion. What on earth is Stephen talking about? Um, worry. Why has God allowed this to happen? All kinds of things. Um, someone did say to me, uh, I find that so encouraging. Isn't that a weird response? It's got to be one of the strangest. You, you look at this description of an unfair kangaroo court trial and then the murder of a Christian brother and come away feeling encouraged or excited. It's quite illogical, but I think that is probably, rather than anything else, the main effects that I think Luke's after, um, which is a bit surprising. So, just remember, Acts is, is really the sequel or the continuation of Luke's Gospel. Um, if you listen to Peter's sermons on Luke, you, you'll know all of this. Uh, he's writing someone called Theophilus. We don't know who that is exactly. It could have been a generic name for any reader. More likely to be an important person, a pseudonym for them. Um, possibly someone in the Jewish leadership, or maybe a wealthy Roman, a patron of Luke's. We're not sure. But because of that, the narrative, it, it seems to work on two levels a lot of the time. and uh, Partly it's instruction for believers, people like us reading it. But at the same time, it, it's also an apologetic and trying to reconcile the reality of Christianity with the claims that it makes. So Luke's initial readers, they're living in this world where Christians are openly persecuted. Jewish believers were rejected, they were punished by their leaders. Uh, converts from other traditions would kind of fall between the two. They would not be as accepted as Jews, they would not be accepted in their home communities. Acts, in fact, ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome, waiting for trial, he's going to be executed. And the readers know all of this. So, they see Christianity as something which is not accepted or recognised, neither politically, nor socially, nor religiously. And any potential converts has to be asking themselves, why would I back that horse? Isn't that betting against the odds? All the experts say it's foolishness. On the other hand, you've got young Christians. There goes a bookmark. Uh, young Christians in need of instruction, that they're facing this um, multitude of dangers, challenges to their faith. Stephen and countless others after him, they've been murdered, imprisoned, beaten, ostracised. How are they going to stand firm in their faith with that kind of opposition? And how can they react to it? 
Now, I, I think Luke's trying to answer both sets of those questions here. And um, he's saying, look what happens when God's Holy Spirit gets to work. This one's out there. Yeah, it is. Look what happens when God's Spirit gets to work in his people. A couple of weeks ago, we were reminded that Acts is, uh, well, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles, but it could just as well be called the Acts of the Spirit. But so far, it's been pretty much the same thing. Peter and the Apostles, they've been the leading men. But back in chapter 2, they quoted Joel, the prophet, saying, God would pour out his Spirit on all people, young and old, male and female. And here in chapter 6 and 7, we're going to get our first real glimpse of that in action. Uh, We'll we'll skim past the beginning of chapter 6, but the key point from verses 1 to 7 is that the apostles, they're they're just swamped. They can't deal with everything that's going on, certainly not without neglecting their task of preaching and praying. So other people have to step up to cope with day-to-day practical issues. But crucially, according to verse 3, the seven men they pick out are chosen on the basis of being full of the Spirit and wisdom. Luke's implication is that the Holy Spirit of God, his mighty power, is not limited to the work being done by the bigwigs in the limelight. He's equally well involved in the, the practical service among all of his people. And it's only once that's recognised, once that's set in motion, that the apostles get back to their side of the work. And then in verse 7 we're told this is how the gospel spread. And many priests begin to believe it's not just through the teaching, but through the Holy Spirit using ordinary Christians involved in practical service. Now, there's loads of stuff we could stop and draw out of that. Um, We could do all kinds of thinking about how we elevate certain skills and types of service over others. But for now, let's just note that this is where Stephen is introduced to us. I think Luke's being really careful to make sure that we don't try and shrug him off as uh, a radical or some kind of oddball. He's mainstream Christianity. This is a man who is full of faith and the Spirit. And so if we want to know what the Holy Spirit does to his people, this is the guy to look at. I think there's three themes that I want to draw out. Um, The first of them is, I think slightly terrifying um, which is this the work of the spirit is resisted by the world in verse 8 we see this guy Stephen he is a man full of God's grace and power he's performing great wonders and signs among the people now that's fantastic isn't it wouldn't you love that everyone loves wonders and signs you know it's brilliant he's an impressive fellow he's clearly a good guy so it's totally bizarre that in the very next verse we're told that opposition rises up to him and before we know it he's been pulled in front of the Sanhedrin to answer to deliberately false accusations despite all his good works, his wonders his his signs, his, his logic and wisdom of argument something is so off about Stephen that they claim he blasphemes against Moses and God. That he speaks against the temple and the law. That he claims Jesus will destroy their temple and change their traditions that Moses has set down for him. 
that's a pretty serious set of accusations. It's about the highest set of crimes that they could imagine. They really want to discredit him completely. They do want him dead. Why? If this is really God's spirit at work, why do people react so violently against it? And Luke's response is basically, it was ever thus. Stephen gets his chance to speak, and, and strangely, he doesn't really attempt to defend himself, but he goes through the history of Israel, reminding them just of the way that God works and the world reacts. Why would you expect people to accept the way that God works? He has always chosen the weak and the underdog to serve his purposes. And the odds have always been against him. First there was Abraham. He's called away from his own country in chapter 7 verse 3 and he becomes poor without even enough land to stand on. No inheritance except God's promises and covenant. He's so old, remember, that his own family laugh at the prospect of descendants. Then there's Joseph, okay, yeah, him of the dream coat. He's given dreams and visions, and as a result of that, what happens? He is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, Israel's patriarchs, no less. Look how that turns out. Israel grows and flourishes in Egypt, but again they're enslaved by an oppressive nation. Moses, he's sent by God with about the clearest mandate in the Old Testament to lead his people to freedom. In verse 36 of chapter 7, it says he takes them out of Egypt. He performs wonders and signs, just like Stephen. But again and again, Israel rejects that leadership and refuses flat out to obey him. This Sanhedrin, they believe that they've got God's laws neatly interpreted in their traditions. God himself safely identified with their temple identified with their national ambitions. But in verse 49, Stephen reminds them that the prophets knew no building could hold God. The prophets understood that God had been acting all over the Middle East and not in Israel. They've tried to box him in. And like their fathers, they have rejected God. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Why are Christians persecuted? Luke wants us to see that this is the way that the world will react to the Spirit. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world, they are so inherently opposite to each other. They've got such wildly different priorities and values that if someone like Stephen comes along, performing wonders and full of faith, with a a face like an angel, Luke's saying he's like Moses when he received the law, speaking truth from the Old Testament, And finally, in verse 56, seeing the Son of Man standing in heaven. When someone like that comes along, 
who is so clearly aligned with the kingdom of heaven, they cannot help but reject him. It's how the world works. And so he is taken out and stoned. Paul recognised that. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 2, he writes that to, to God and to those who are being saved, he's like the pleasing aroma of Christ. But to those who are perishing, he's like the stench of death, repugnance, to be removed as quickly as possible. The work of the Spirit is resisted by the world. I think there's a pretty clear warning there for us, isn't there? Luke's wanting his Christian readers to be realistic. If the Spirit of God is at work in us, there will be a real clash between us and the world. Part of that will be internal. We, like the Sanhedrin, we will resist the Spirit. There will be ways that we do not want to change new ideas we do not want to accept, things we will not give up. Be warned of that. Be alert to it. But externally as well. Now it's worth saying we're not in Stephen's situation. He had a a unique audience. He was speaking directly to the people who had uh, condemned Christ, handed him over to Pilate and demanded his death. We don't face that. And by and large in Britain, the the opposition we come up against is of a totally different calibre. But we will find that if we take the Bible to heart, if we espouse Christian priorities or ambitions or patterns of behaviour and language even, inevitably there will be contrast with the world. People will mock us, maybe openly, maybe subtly. They may heap disdain on our folly or just ignore it and claim that Christianity is just so hopelessly out of touch with the modern world, that is to be relegated to the bad old days of ignorance. And that is how it should be. The temptation for us, obviously, is just to uh, apologise too much, to dilute what we say and the differences we present until the message doesn't stand out so much and cause offence. But if Christianity doesn't stand out, if it doesn't receive the ridicule and opposition, then How's the world going to see God's kingdom at work? How can hearts be struck by the wonder of it? A a sort of homeopathic, diluted gospel isn't going to affect anyone for better or worse. Sorry if there's any homeopaths here. Um, Chapter 5, we see the gospel first standing out in Jerusalem. And what happens? The apostles, they're taken before the Sanhedrin, interrogated and flogged. So they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What happens when the Spirit gets to work among his people? He's resisted. Christians will face opposition and disgrace. Now I think that's an unsettling first point. I don't like opposition. I don't like disgrace much either. Um, So don't worry. The next two are are more encouraging and hopefully a bit briefer. So Uh, He is resisted, but secondly, the work of the Spirit is powerful. Now Luke really wants to reassure his Christian readers of this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just fire Stephen up and set him to work uh, and then leave him to his faith. Now God is entirely sovereign over the whole process. And that turns up in his speech as well. When Stephen paints the history of Israel from the point of view of God's weak people, 
going through centuries of opposition, we see, again, the kingdom of God entirely opposite to the pattern of the world. Weak people made strong, poor people made rich. But crucially, at every stage of the conflict, it's God's kingdom that prevails. Stephen chooses his characters quite carefully. He goes from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, then Joseph, Moses, David and Solomon. And at each step, Israel has grown bigger and become stronger. God's Spirit has always, in every way, overcome that opposition that he faces. Word up to Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen says, You've betrayed and murdered the righteous one. But even that hasn't stopped him. Jesus is risen. Stephen sees him standing at the right hand of God in heaven, glorified by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit may be resisted in the world, but he is victorious at every step. And Luke wants us to understand this doesn't stop at Christ. So he tells of how the mob drags Stephen out of town. They abandon all semblance of obeying the Roman law over them, and they stone him to death. But even here, there's no defeat, is there? Verse 59 is amazing. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's such a striking passage. It's not a violent death. It's not an ending. He falls asleep to wake soon. His spirit is received by Jesus who was on his feet in heaven to welcome him. If we belong to Jesus, we will face opposition, but nothing will pluck us from his hand. He'll let no meaningful harm come to us. We'll pass through the refiner's fire, sure, but only so that we can be presented whole, perfected before God. That's why the apostles were rejoicing, considering it glorious to suffer disgrace for his name. Of course, there's a, a second conflict there as well. The sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God is such that what we'd consider a disaster turns out to be the springboard for some new work. You know, looking at the first few verses of chapter 8, we, we see the great persecution break out off the back of Stephen's death. And what's the result? Well, the gospel is spread through Judea and Samaria. Saul, the big bad guy, he's set on a path which transforms him into Paul, the apostle who takes this gospel out to the Gentiles, even towards the ends of the earth, just as was promised in chapter 1. The work of the Spirit is powerful. It will not be thwarted. There's so much encouragement there. What seems like rubbish or horror to me, God will use. You might be able to think of people you know who are utterly indifferent to the gospel. I'm deeply impressed when they see Christians responding to hardship. We might think of the bemused and slightly amazed media response when those quaint Christians in Haiti respond to tragedy by gathering to worship God, pray for forgiveness and for healing. The Spirit moves in bizarre but powerful ways. And better than that, if we've got faith in Jesus Christ and the sovereign power of God is at work in our hearts, nothing 
can stand between me and heaven. And like Stephen, we'll see him there. He'll receive us. He'll welcome us home. Nothing will change that. Have a read of Romans 8. Often quoted, often misused, but it's staggering. Now, I, I, I can't wrap my sinful mind around this. Okay, that encouragement is too much for me. It, it seems often just like pie in the sky. So if you're like me, then the, the third point I want to draw out is pretty crucial. Left to ourselves, we won't get any of this. It, it's just too early. And it, it takes a miracle to even start opening our eyes to this encouragement. But fortunately, the, the third point I just wanted to draw out for us is that the Holy Spirit transforms us. And specifically, he transforms us into images of Jesus. A cynic amongst Luke's readers is going to look at this and he's going to say, well, Stephen has been snuffed out untimely, hasn't he? He's been taken out of the equation. That's what happens to Christians. And Luke wants to give us a totally different view. Luke wants to present him as a work complete, ready to be harvested. It's hard not to see the parallels, really, when you start thinking about it between Stephen and his master. Just like Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen works signs and wonders. He's full of God's grace and power. Just like Jesus, opposition rises up to him from amongst mainstream Judaism. As with Jesus, they, they can't overcome the Spirit's wisdom, so they take false witnesses and dishonesty to bring him to trial. Just like Jesus, Stephen is accused of speaking against the temple and the law. In fact, what what he represents is the fulfilment of the law and the reality that the temple illustrated God making his home in the human heart. Just like Jesus. Luke makes it more and more obvious as we get close to his death that we've got a sham trial, a testimony taken as admission of guilt, uh, handing over to mob justice. Just like Jesus at the cross, he prays forgiveness on his killers. He commits his spirit to his Lord and he dies. Luke's written this story before, hasn't he? His audience, they they may well have been looking at these bizarre, weak Christian movements which keep springing up everywhere and getting flattened by the authorities. They, They may well have been thinking that each death or each beating or humiliation was a snapshot of Christian defeat. Evidence that this movement is not going to last. It's just a flash in the pan of world history. And Luke wants to repaint that for them. Stephen's death, that's not defeat. That is glorious victory. A sinful human transformed into the image of his saviour. It's the purpose of the Spirit to guide and counsel, to correct and rebuke and intercede for Christ's people until they are remade in his image. Glorious and and pleasing to God. The persecution that breaks down in chapter 8, it's not evidence of the weakness and fragility of Christianity, it's the telltale signs that the Spirit's been at work. Ordinary Christian men and women, so changed by the Spirit that they stand out and they draw the world's fire. People have been so remade in the image of Christ that they are counted worthy to face disgrace and persecution with him. To share in the staggering glory of his cross. As the Spirit spreads and works powerfully to act, we 
We see this wave of transformation. It spreads out into the nations. More and more people changed. More and more people sharing in Christ's accolade. And that carries on right the way down to us. So I, I think there is something profoundly exciting here in Stephen's death. To be remade in Christ's image to his glory. Isn't that wonderful? That's the work of the Spirit in each and every one of his people, including us. That's the purpose of our time here on earth. That whatever joys or hardships we face, uh, through those we'd be conformed more and more to his likeness until we're presented before him complete. That's how Jesus will be glorified. It means that even if, hypothetically, we are facing great hardship, it's still possible for us to rejoice. We, we know the Spirit's at work. We, we know that His good purposes are being worked out even when we don't see the evidence. We are being transformed towards something amazing. Less hypothetical, perhaps. But I think this impacts on every moment of our lives. Let me ask, how will you stand firm in the face of opposition? What will motivate you to reach out to that lonely person or um, to that difficult character? How will you go about it? How will I change? How do I resist that temptation which, to be honest, has mastered me for years? Is it even worth trying you're a Christian you're being transformed to the image of Christ that's how we stand firm we'll be imitators of him we'll be imbued with his character so even even when we do make a hash of things we know it's under his sovereign control that's why we'll stand firm because there is no greater glory than to be made more like him And that victory by grace, even if it's over the smallest sin, or even if it's just once over a recurring problem, it's worth it a thousand times over. I think that that is what Luke wanted his audience to see. This story of Stephen, it's not bitter defeat, but glorious, remarkable success. And particularly something which will be played out where the Spirit works in his people. That's every believer who accepts him. I think that's pretty encouraging. Um, I'll finish though with just a few application questions. and You, you might want to mull them over just for yourself and that's fine. There'll be some music in a second I think. And then uh, Tim will, will lead us in communion in a few minutes. But you might want to discuss things. You might want to pray with other people, or just pray for yourself. Um, But the first question I wanted to ask you is, are there areas of your life where you're resisting Spirit's work? Are there there promptings you're aware of where you you don't want to change? Are there new ideas which you're just dismissing out of hand? Are there things you 
aren't keen to give up. How is God calling you to suffer for him? Is it that you face opposition? Or um, are there temptations which you're being called to stand against? And thirdly, uh, in what ways do you need the Spirit to transform you at the moment? If you're going to be conformed closer to the pattern set by Jesus, I should say you do need the Spirit. Uh, You won't manage it alone. That's probably worth throwing in at some point. Um, But why don't we just think about those, either individually for ourselves or if you want to, discussing on your tables and praying together. Thank you.